episode 104, Supporting Trauma Survivors of Natural Disasters on the Social Workers Rise podcast. Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Catherine here. Today we are talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. It is supporting trauma survivors of natural disasters. So one, we're going to talk about what do I mean when I say one, trauma survivors and two, natural disasters. And this is going to be coming from a personal perspective of what I wish professionals knew after I lost my home in a California wildfire. Given the recent hurricanes in Florida, the ongoing wildfires in California, Colorado, and around the country, this topic is vital that you know just at least the basics that I'm going to cover in this podcast because you never know when you're going to be called in to help your community after a traumatic event or after a natural disaster. So before we hop into the episode, we are going to take a listen to the ad from our sponsor, The Rise Directory, and then we'll hop right into it. This episode is proudly brought to you by the RISE Directory, a national directory of clinical supervisors who are dedicated to helping the next generation of clinical social workers grow in their clinical skills. The link is in the show notes. Check it out and tell every clinical supervisor you know about this directory. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Social Workers Rise. It is your host, Catherine here. So today we are talking about a topic that is near and dear and personal to me, which is uh, natural disasters. So when I was 16 years old, my home burned down in a California wildfire, and it affected my entire life. And now that I am much older, I'm able to reflect back on this experience from a different lens, no longer being an emotional teenager or stuck in the whirlwinds of trauma, but now I'm able to look back and really see the big picture about, you know, what happened and how could the people in my life or mostly the school, to be honest, because that was you know, primarily where I was, was in school, you know, how could the school officials have supported us better? What are five things that I wish they knew so that they could have acted differently and been more supportive? And first, you know, it's important to acknowledge that this is not just 
an experience that's exclusive to me. There are so many people who experience natural disasters, and you as a social worker will be called on to help people in your community if, you know, God forbid, a disaster strikes your community. And, you know, for example, there are, this is, and this is how prevalent it is, right? So there are roughly 6,800 natural disasters that happen every year around the globe. And when I say natural disasters, I'm talking about hurricanes, earthquakes, transportation accidents, large scale, volcanoes, tsunamis, wildfires, and that probably isn't even all of them, but those are what I'm talking about as far as natural disasters. Here in the United States, we recently experienced Hurricane Ian, and it is the year 2022. And Hurricane Ian has was actually Florida's deadliest hurricane since 1935. And it has been linked to the deaths of well over 100 people in the state. Very, very tragic. And so when these disasters strike, we don't know, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to be the aftermath. And sometimes we may even be dealing with them in our own community as well. So there is that double stressor about your dealing with it personally and in your professional life. You also have to be able to help your clients be able to deal with the uh, with the aftermaths as well. Um, as far as wildfires, they are they happen so much. Not only here in California, but also Colorado, Oregon, Washington, and other states as well. And since 2000, the year 2000, there has been an average annual of, sorry, (laughs) an annual average of 70,072 wildfires every year. So 70,000 wildfires around the United States since 2000. And between 2018 and 2021, over 50,000 structures have been burned. And this is a lot. These are people's workplaces. They're people's homes. They're, they're pe- there's things that people own in there. You know, very important, important, you know, memories that are in there. Um, sometimes it's your home. So you can be housed and doing pretty well on Friday. And by Saturday, you're homeless. It can happen very, very fast where your life is just turned upside down. And you don't know what to do, right? We're never trained on how to survive a wildfire, how to survive a hurricane. And a lot of times, even when there are ways to prepare, right? So the government will say, oh, you know, get prepared, be prepared. What do you have in your kit? Whatever. And and then even talking about the aftermath of it, they leave out the emotional and mental health part of it. They don't talk about how to cope after. They don't talk about what would be normal emotions to feel. And so it's very likely that when you are encountering people who have experienced natural disasters, they may be traumatized. They may still be in shock. They may 
just be lost or feel overwhelmed or feel numb even, right? So that was part of my story. And I'll tell you, I'll just tell you my story right now. So it was an October afternoon, one of the beautiful, sunny, windy days in Southern California. And I was out shopping that morning. And when when I came out of the store, you know, I really didn't, I knew there was a wildfire, you know, semi-close in the foothills behind my house, but I didn't think about it because there are always wildfires going on. Not always, but you know, it's often like a couple times a year, there'll be a fire within the vicinity that we could see from our house, the smoke, right? So especially being a teenager, I really didn't think about it and didn't think about it too much. And it didn't dawn on me that something could actually happen, right? Because we have firefighters and we have all of these things in place. <clears throat> so when we left the store, we started driving back up to, to our house and, uh, it was super smoky. The more, the closer that we got to the house, the more dense the smoke became to where it was like driving through a thick fog. We could hardly see anything. And what we did see, it was our, a trail of cars just leaving the neighborhood. All of our neighbors had left by the time that we ha had got up there or most of our neighbors had left anyway. And when I got to the house, I walked up to it. The electricity was out already. And so I had to go to the back door, which we had left it open. <clears throat> and the fire alarm is blaring. It's just going off. And it's so smoky inside. I didn't know what to do. I was like, okay, let's just grab everything. But I'm so frozen and just in shock that um, by the time I could like think of what to do, my next door neighbor had ran in and she said, oh my gosh, what are you doing in here? We need to get out. We need to leave right now. Because what I didn't know and what she knew is that the fire was already in my backyard. The trees were on fire 30 feet away from my house. And so it is a really good thing that she pulled me out of that house. Uh, but what happened is we left with the clothes on our backs. We didn't have a chance to pack up anything. And this was um, in 2003. And you can look it up if you want. This was uh, known as the old fire. And six lives were lost in that fire. And it destroyed 940 homes. So massive devastation. And this is not even the biggest fire that we've had just here in California. But there are there have been fires that destroy, you know, over a thousand homes, like entire communities, neighborhoods. So it was ex I, I remember, you know, we left and I was I didn't even know what to think. Right. So we went to my family's house and we crept back in that night. And I say crept because they don't let you, you know, the officials don't let you go back in. And by that time, the firefighters had arrived and they blocked off the streets because when we first went up there, there was not a firefighter engine or helicopter. There was nothing, nowhere in sight because all of the resources had been directed to other fires that were already happening in the state. So the old fire, you know, this fire that took my home, it was, it was kind of left to just 
burn um, until they could get people in place to start battling this fire as well. So we crept back up to the neighborhood. We took the side streets back up and uh, and I remember seeing my house just flattened. And the only thing left standing was the fireplace and our ceramic bathtub. <laughs> and that was it. And I remember feeling like I was in a movie, that there is no way this could be real. And that there's, I was, I was just in shock. I didn't, I didn't have any feelings. I just was numb. Right. And a lot of our other neighbors were there and I'd say about half the neighborhood lost their houses that day in a matter of a couple hours. Um, so many of us were homeless. And so when I went back to school a couple of days later, they ended up um, giving, giving the students a couple of days break from school uh, because the fire was so large. And there were some helpful teachers and there were some unhelpful teachers. Hey, it's Catherine here. I hope you are enjoying this episode. We're going to take a quick break to listen to these ads from our sponsors. If you're planning to take the BBS Law and Ethics exam, the ASWB Master's or Clinical Licensure exam, or if you're studying for the MFT exam, then you need a proven program that can help you understand the exam questions and pass with confidence. If this is you, I highly recommend the Therapist Development Center. I personally use TDC to pass my law and ethics and clinical exams and found the program provided me with everything I needed to pass with confidence. TDC's program integrates various ways of learning in an organized fashion containing all of the information you need to pass without the overwhelm. And now, bonus, TDC is also offering a library of continuing education courses that fulfill your license renewal requirements and will support you in your career development. If this sounds like something that you need, visit their website, therapistdevelopmentcenter.com and use the code SWRISE10 at checkout to receive 10% off any of their CE courses including their brand new course, On the Edge of Life, an introduction to suicidality. You can also check out the link in the show notes. Do you love horses, nature, and being outside? Do you dream of having a successful career working with horses and helping humans? Horse Therapy Center of Canada provides certification and professional training to mental health professionals like you who want to launch a business or career in equine-assisted therapy. With three different delivery methods, you can become an equine-assisted therapist in as little as four days. For Social Workers Rise podcast listeners like you, my friend, Horse Therapy Center of Canada is offering you up to $700 off of their certification and training programs. So don't wait. Start your career in equine assisted therapy and learning today, check the show notes for how you can get started. So first with the unhelpful teachers, of course, those are the ones I, I, that really stick out in my mind as what the heck were you thinking? But 
you know, knowing, knowing what I know now, I just know that there is no training for them. There is no awareness around how to approach students in this, um, this type of situation. There was a lack of trauma-informed um, teaching for them. So I went back to school and one teacher had made a comment about how he enjoyed his vacation, having some extra couple days off. It was great. And of course, that made me feel terrible because uh, it was the most horrific event of my life, very far from a vacation. Um, so very, very unsensitive to what his students may have been going through. And um, there was another teacher who, you know, when we got back, I'm, I think they had the best intention, but I don't know, because they, they asked, you know, oh, you know, raise your hand if you had lost your home in the wildfire. And you didn't know me in high school, most likely, but I was like extremely shy, very timid. I didn't talk very much and I didn't like attention. I hated people feeling sorry for me. So there was no way I am raising my hand in response to that question. Absolutely no way. Plus, I didn't want people knowing all my business, right? Teenagers are, are ruthless and I just didn't feel comfortable, you know, acknowledging that at that time. But after class, I went to him and, and I said, you know, um, you know, do you have any extra textbooks because I can't do my homework, uh, without the textbook. And he was like, well, you know, what happened to your textbook? I said, well, you know, it burned down in the fire and he almost berated me like, well, why didn't you raise your hand when I asked you that if you lost your house? And at that point it was like, he didn't believe me that he didn't believe that I had lost my textbook in the fire and that I was lying for, I don't know. I don't know why I would want an extra <laughs> textbook, but you know, nonetheless, it was, um, it was embarrassing and I felt ashamed. And, you know, while that wasn't their intention, that was the repercussion. That was the result of them not having the training or, or not even thinking about being sensitive to the needs of their students. So, you know, I, as I reflect on this and, you know, every October I think about this and more because in the past couple years, the wildfires here in California have become much more prevalent and for a long time, I would be triggered by them, you know, by seeing the smoke, by uh, especially by smelling the fire or by seeing ash fall down. Even if, even if cognitively I know it is miles and miles away and I am not in physical danger, it's a trigger for me that my mind for a long time, I would just get flashbacks. I would break down in tears. I would be in panic because all of the memories would flood back at one time for me. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what to do with it. I, I did the best that I possibly could, um, but it affected me for a long time. And now it's been, what, almost 20 years. I still do experience anxiety if I if I walk out of my house and all and I'm not expecting a wildfire then I feel the smoke I get this this pang in my chest like oh my gosh what is happening and I I have this need 
to know exactly what is going on. Where is the fire? Because if I know like, okay, there's a wildfire in the hills, but it's very far away and I know what's going on with it. Then when I walk outside, I'm mentally prepared and it's not a shock to me. Um, but I remember there would be times where I would be driving, I'd have to drive next to one and it wasn't safe for me because I'm like crying, but I'm trying to hold it together so that I, I can just make it through the smoky area. Um, and so it was, it was very, very difficult for a very long time. And knowing what I know now, I know that that's normal, right? That is the trauma response. And it's important to know that not everyone who goes through the same situation will develop signs of trauma or the, um, the symptoms, right? So not everyone is going to experience the way I did. Not everyone got flashbacks. You know, I had some nightmares. You know, a lot of people didn't get nightmares, but some people did. And for some people, it was much worse, right? So each person is going to experience this traumatic event differently. And the way that trauma will or will not manifest in their life is going to be different. So there is no one way or one appropriate or quote normal way to react to something like this. So it's important to just take that time and honor what people are trying to tell you, what their experiences have been like. So reflecting back, these are five things that I wish that the school officials knew so that they could have done it differently. One is understand the basics of trauma and a traumatic situation and educate as appropriate, right? So there would have been a lot of opportunities for our teachers to, one, be educated themselves about what to look out for, what are the warning signs of kids or families who need help, and provide that education. Also, they could have provided the education to the families. They could have reached out, right? Um, one thing I will acknowledge, too, is there was a group of teachers who did the right thing. So they they wanted to help the students, and they actually, on their days off, it was not a vacation for them, they actually drove around to the students' homes, to the addresses that they had on file, and they noted which students' homes were lost in the fire, which ones burned down. And they got together a fund for those students. And to this day, I don't know how many students there were, but I know for me personally, uh, one of my teachers gave me a card when I came back from, you know, from this event and he just put it on my desk. And when I got back, I was feeling so defeated, so overwhelmed, so hopeless, like everything was lost. My books, I had no clothes. I had, you know, we had limited income, so we didn't have like thousands of dollars to just replenish our wardrobes, right? So the money was very limited and it just all felt very overwhelming. Even my sports equipment, because I was doing sports in high school, all of that was gone. And all of these things can be very expensive. And I'm like, I'm worrying like, you know, how are we going to afford this? And he just left a card on my desk and didn't say anything and walked away. And I opened it and it was a card and I forget exactly what it said, but they knew what had happened and they had given me $100. And this has been 
the most impactful hundred dollars to this day in my entire life because immediately I felt seen. I felt acknowledged. And that was and by them giving me cash, it was entrusting me to buy what I needed. They didn't assume what I needed. They gave me the power to go uh, buy what what it was that I needed. And and a hundred dollars, you know, in this situation, looking back, is not a lot, but man, it was a glimmer of hope. It was that light that I needed, and it was just enough to be able to go to the store and buy basic things, basic things that you don't want other people buying for you. Like I want to pick out my own chonies. I want to pick out what t-shirts I wear. I want to pick out my own socks, right? I want to know, I want to pick out my own toothbrush and deodorant, things like that, that are very personal and, and that you need, but they cost money. They cost money to replace. So, so that was really, really impactful. And the other thing that was super impactful with that gesture was he told me without saying anything, I see you, I know what you've been through, and I'm a safe person to talk to. I'm not going to pressure you into talking. I'm not going to pressure you into telling the whole class your traumatic story. I'm not going to, you know, ask you any questions or make you, make you tell me anything that you don't want to. But I knew that that was a safe person to go to, even though I don't even think I really talked to that teacher. But I hung out in the class more and I I just felt safe there because I knew that I wasn't at risk of being humiliated or being questioned about my motives or anything like that. So very, very powerful to not force people to talk to you when they're not ready, right? Um, Which a lot of times we can do as social workers, we can inadvertently re-traumatize by making them talk about things that they're just not ready to do. And the most important thing with trauma is just knowing that you are a safe person that they can be around. So that's that's number one, is understand the basics of trauma and educate as appropriate. Number two would be to talk with talk with the survivors, talk about what is it that they need. You know, do they need housing? Do they need money? Do they need food? Is it closed? Do they have their medications? Do they have their pets? Were there any pets lost? Were there any family members lost? So just talk about, you know, what it is that they need in a safe and private setting, right? Whatever feels safe for them. And um, this comes up especially like in the aftermath, right? The couple days. Um, But even the day of, so sometimes they have, or a lot of times, they have shelters that people can go when they don't have anywhere else to go and they've lost their home or evacuation shelters where people can go if they're under mandatory evacuation. So, you know, that's your chance to really talk to them and and listen and see what they need because you're not going to fix it. You're not going to fix this <laughs> this situation. But what you can do is help them feel safe, heard, and seen and and reassure them that, look, you're not alone in this. There's, you know, I'm going to do what I possibly can to help you through this experience. And once you do that, you know, number three would be provide resources, provide accurate information and answer their questions as honestly as you can, 
at an appropriate developmental level. So what the school officials also could have done is send out um, a flyer or some sort of information with resources available in case, you know, in case anyone needed them, right? So resources for food, for housing, for shelter. And also be honest, like if there are limited resources, if they're not available, you know, be honest about that. Because it would be so much worse if you're just trailing them on as like, well, let me see, let me see, let me see. I don't know. When you know damn well that that agency is there, there is no agency providing exactly what this person needs. And just having that closure, like, okay, bummer. You know, there's not an agency that provides what I need. So we got to figure something else out instead of holding on to that hope, um, that false hope that you're giving them by not providing the accurate information. And, and also too, you know, at a developmental level. So this is especially true within the school system, working with families. Um, there's different literacy levels. There's different language, um, language abilities. There's language barriers. And there's also um, different ages where people can understand, you know, information that on a different level, right? So as a teenager, I was able to understand like all of the, all of the things, right? I don't know if I could have handled it emotionally. So being able to really continually assess how are they doing when people have experienced trauma, you know, little bits of healing with trauma go a long way. So it's important to not overwhelm people as well, because that can be re-traumatizing. And the fourth, the fourth thing, which I guess kind of goes in with what I just covered, would be provide psychoeducation to the parents and community leaders on supports needed for trauma-informed care so that we don't cause any more psychological damage, so that we do not re-traumatize the people who have already experienced this awful event and who have lost their homes, they're homeless, they lost everything that they own, they may have lost pets, or they may have lost loved ones. People die in these natural disasters all the time, so there's that added component of grief. And you can't think clearly when you're grieving, when you're in shock, right? So really breaking it down, providing that education to the parents, how to support their kids, how to support themselves, and also to the community leaders, right? To the principals, to the the city, to the government, to church leaders on how can they support their community in a safe way, right? And going along with this is number five is to coordinate community support groups because that would have been extremely helpful for me just knowing that there is a place that I could go to talk about this, to process this, to have other people who know what I'm feeling. Because when you go through this, you want to talk about it sometimes. Sometimes people want to talk about it. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're not ready. But just knowing that there is that place that they could go, having that reassurance that they're not alone, it gives them that choice instead of just feeling like, well, even if I was ready to talk about it, there's nowhere to go. There's no safe place. There's no one that would listen. And I don't want to burden other people with my problems. 
right? A lot of times that's why we hold it in because we don't want to cause pain to other people or we tell ourselves, well, they have their own problems. They don't want to hear about mine. But when you have a specific support group for this, it allows for that open dialogue, for that open space and to get feedback and support from other people who are experiencing the same event and who really truly understand what it's like, right? Because for a lot of my friends, I knew one person on a friend level that also lost their home. Uh, But for the other kids, they had no idea what I was going through, like not a single clue. And it would be one of those things where, where it's easy to diminish what someone is going through. Like, oh yeah, well, you know, I was there for the fire too and I'm fine. I don't know why you're so upset type thing. You just need to get over it. This happened like a whole month ago. I don't know why you're still, you know, complaining about this, right? Um, Because people don't get it. And again, you know, they're not trained on how to be trauma-informed, which we shouldn't be asking teenagers or children to be trained. This is the responsibility of you as a social worker to know this information and to act upon it, to take action with it, and to be able to support your coworkers, educate your colleagues on what is needed. Because a lot of times people, it's just much easier to focus on the logistics of things. Like, oh, okay, well, you know, we have a shelter set up and there's food there. So like people should be fine. But no, I mean, if you have a shelter set up, you need to have mental health professionals there as well to process this, to have the, to have the communication open, to be there as a support and to facilitate a safe place of healing. So if you are interested in this topic or if you are with an organization who would benefit from some sort of training on this, definitely reach out to me. I am available. I do trainings on all sorts of topics, including grief and loss, life transitions, anxiety management, burnout prevention and recovery. So definitely, definitely um, reach out if this is something that you're interested in learning more about. Um, Also, we do have the Social Workers Rise email list on Fridays. Some Fridays I will send out resources and I'll be sending out all of the notes that I have about the signs and symptoms to look out for, when should people seek additional therapeutic support, and what are going to be common uh, symptoms that people would expect to experience after living through a natural disaster. So I will, until next week, talk to you soon. Take care. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, please open up your iTunes, tap the five stars, and leave a short note on why you love listening to the Social Workers Rise podcast. Also, if you want to share it on social media, I absolutely love it. You'll have me fangirling all over you. Take a screenshot and share it and tag me at Social Workers Rise on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, just want to leave a little bit of legal disclosure here that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Social Workers Rise podcast 
are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done so at your own risk. This podcast should not be used in place of professional advice, therapy, or clinical supervision. And with that, my friends, I'll talk to you next week.